Well, you know, the human thing is that we don't really do anything unless we have a real pain or we fall in love with a new idea. You know, we're not really sort of predictive in the sense of actually doing stuff without a reason. So now uh, with the crisis, we've really gotten into technology. And I would say you ain't seen nothing yet as the song goes, because now we're going to see virtual reality, mixed reality, holograms. We're going to live in virtual rooms. We're going to live in the cloud, so to speak. And at the same time, we are going to go back to meet face-to-face because it is human, right? After all, uh, I always say Zoom is great, but hugs are greater. Welcome to We Talk IoT, a regular series of podcasts from the editors of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. This podcast is brought to you by Avnet Silica in cooperation with Microsoft. Hi, I'm Tim Cole, the Editor-in-Chief of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. Gap Leonhardt lives in the future, and sometimes he comes back and tells the rest of us what it will look like. He's the head of the Futures Agency, a think tank that advises corporations and top-level executives about what changes to expect in their fields and on ways to future-proof their businesses. He's the author of the bestseller Technology Versus Humanity. He writes a regular column for our magazine, Smart Industry. And he and I have been good friends now for over a decade. Gat, it's great to have you here on our podcast. So tell me, what's new? Uh, what's new? Well, it's a great pleasure to be with you first. Um, what's new? Well, I, it kind of feels like everything is new these days. You know, It feels like uh, in many ways because of the COVID crisis, people have lost the plot on the past. Like many things that were normal have gone away. And all of a sudden, technology is everywhere. Climate change is up front. And the discussion about reaching a common good, like the future of humanity, is raging everywhere. So people are really asking questions and also challenging our assumptions. So the COVID crisis has sort of uh, accelerated change. Do you believe we will ever go back to normal pre-COVID? You know, I think we're going back to normal in many ways, like, you know, going to a restaurant or flying in, in some way or the other, because those those things are human. But are we going back to how we thought about things in the future and what we wanted before COVID? I don't think we're going back there. We have to go forward into a future that is more prepared and more ready, more collaborative and protecting and preparing us for what we need, not just with public health care and pandemic, but also with technology, with artificial intelligence, with geoengineering. So it's really the thinking that has changed. And you can see that happening everywhere in business and in technology and, of course, also in politics. Uh, the discussions about the future are really, really big now. Well, just a, a simple instance, the fact that we are talking now over Zencast or over an online platform was almost unthinkable about two years ago. I mean, you and I both have been writing about home office and new ways to communicate for decades, but some, uh, somehow people didn't listen to us. Now everybody does it. Well, you know, the human thing is that we don't really do anything unless we have a real pain or we fall in love with a new idea. You know, we're not really sort of predictive in the sense of actually doing stuff without a reason. So now uh, with the crisis, we've really gotten into technology. And I would say you ain't seen nothing yet, as the song goes, because now we're going to see virtual reality, mixed reality, holograms. We're going to live in virtual rooms. We're going to live in the cloud, so to speak. And at the same time, 
we are going to go back to meet face to face because it is human, right? After all, uh, I always say Zoom is great, but hugs are greater, right? So, so we're definitely <laughs> we're definitely going to see the hybrid world unfolding at mind-boggling speed. In your book, you worry about exponential technology, technology that grows so fast that it will leave us humans far behind. Do we have any hope of keeping up? You know, I think the main thing about technology is uh, two things. First, uh, it is morally neutral until we use it, right, William Gibson? So if we want technology to behave morally, ethically with our values, we have to put those rules and frameworks in place, right? And second, uh, too much of a good thing can be a very bad thing. So <laughs> this goes for food, technology, for everything, right? For alcohol, for cigarettes, whatever, right? And uh, we are at the point where technology is almost infinitely capable. And in 10 years, it will be definitely possible to do what once used to be science fiction. So if we want the right thing to happen that is good for humans, we're going to have to think about how we orchestrate it, how we regulate it, how we develop social contracts, and how we define what is good and what is not. It turns out that exponential growth is tricky. I mean, we have Moore's Law for years, and we always thought it only applied to chips, computer processors. But it turns out it applies to every aspect of technology. And one of your sentences in your book is, first, it goes slow, and then it gets very, very fast. Yeah, I call it gradually and then suddenly. It's uh, taken from a Hemingway novel. It's basically saying that first we don't notice anything, and then when we reach the pivot point, it just explodes, like we do now with online conferencing. You know, we reach the pivot point, and now you have, what, 340 million Zoom users, right, <laughs> in a very short time. And this is what exponential does. And the problem is that technology is exponential because it's binary. It's hardware, software. It is, it is technology, right? And humans are not exponential. You know, we are gradually growing and, and we, we don't leap. You know, we don't double our brain capacity because we add more processors, uh, not yet at least. <laughs> and so we are stuck in this, trying to figure out how to keep exponential technology from becoming so powerful that we are essentially call, uh, in the, uh, entering the sort of black hole and this idea of not being able to control it or not even understanding it, right? Um, that is going to be a major challenge. And of course, uh, people worry about robots taking away their jobs and, and taking over the world. Is there any basis for that uh, concern? Well, there is always a basis for that, you know, when you think exponential times the next 30 years, you know, basically when you go exponential, you go uh, 30 steps, you get across the living room or out in the street here if you go linear. But if you go exponential, it's 26 times around the globe, right? And that is what we're going to face in 30 years, roughly 2050 as this point of singularity, right? Today, the primary problem is not that technology will take over, but that we become too much like technology. We get mentally lazy, we look at algorithms, uh, we let everything be done for us, we stop judging, we stop using our humanity, we stop using emotions, you know, we kind of, you know, become quiet in the face of a giant database and AI. And that is not a good thing, it's dehumanizing. So really what it comes down to is when we think about technology taken over, is governance, regulation, control. And I think at this point, our future has to be that we, we have to always keep the human in the loop. It's called HITL, right? Human in the loop. And especially when you talk about the IoT and things like that, we need to keep humans in the loop, even if it's slower or more expensive or inefficient, 
because that's the only way that we can make sure we have benefits, you know, ultimately. I just read somewhere on, on Quora that uh, Moore's Law also applies to humanity. Uh, if you go back 33 generations, you actually reach the point where everyone is related to everyone else. It's called the genetic isopoint. So we are all related to um, Julius Caesar, for instance, or the Buddha. <laughs> 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 well, I, I, ver I very rarely feel like Julius Caesar, but I think the, the reality is that in terms of our processing power, we are far ahead of machines and our efficiency and all of those things that we're still ahead there, right? But machines are growing so quickly in their learning capacity, but their learning is binary. Like, you know, when I meet you for the first time, you can learn about me in a very short time, 0.4 seconds, and you kind of know who Gerd is because we're both human. Machines don't do that, but they can memorize all of Wikipedia in less than a minute. So it's, and, and this is what we're facing, is that I think that anything that is a machine job, any routine that involves only logic will be done by machines in the near future. And anything that does not will be done by humans because, you know, we can deal with things that are not routine. You're fond of quoting the famous Canadian philosopher and futurist Marshall McLuhan, who once warned that every time we extend our capabilities, we also amputate others. What have we gained and what have we lost so far through digital technology? Yeah, when McLuhan wrote this, you know, in the 70s or so, uh, he was talking about the telephone and television and so on. And that, those were very big steps. And of course, ultimately, the internet, but exponentially speaking, they were at the very beginning of the curve, you know, like below one. And when you double 0.01 to 0.02 or, or 0.04, it is still very little. But we're now at the point of doubling 4, 8, 16. And, and those are fundamental leaps. Right? So when we extend ourselves, literally by what Elon Musk calls the neural link, you know, uploading our brain to the computer and becoming hybrid technology or humanity beings, then it's entirely different, right? Because we're all of a sudden at the point to where we're superhuman, right? So again, the exponential part comes into play there. Uh, and, and this is really what we have to watch out for. At a certain point, it becomes something that we can't manage anymore. Well, I don't really think I'm in danger of becoming a superhuman, but maybe our kids. <laughs> One of your favorite dictums is science fiction is increasingly becoming science fact. Where do you see this happening the most? Well, basically everywhere. I mean, if you're looking around, like language recognition, I can speak to my computer, I can dictate emails, I can do all these things on Google Maps and intelligent assistants and so on and so on. It's not perfect yet. Like my own name, you know, if I say Gert to any machine that's, that's running in English, it will not understand what it is because Gert is in English, right? It'll end up nerd or turd or whatever, right? But not Gert. But this is being fixed so quickly. Like, if you look at what's happened uh, with image recognition, machines are already better than humans in many ways of image recognition. And this is going to happen with recognizing sound and recognizing voices and translating and all that. That's science fiction, right? Uh, just speaking in advice and coming out in Korean or that's already happening. And the other example clearly is what's happening with energy. You know, uh, it used to be science fiction to think of clean energy as achievable, and now it's coming within reach. Water, wind, solar, of course, nuclear fusion. I would say in 20 years, we'll probably have abundant energy, like we have abundant music today. And on that note, Spotify is science fiction, you know, uh, 15 years ago. 
music on the cloud, nobody would have allowed it. Now it's here. What may be amazing, magical, and good for us today may soon become too much of a good thing in the future, you say. Technology may move from being something God sent to being a doomsday machine in just a few years. Could you give us a few examples what you mean by that? Well, the best example really is Facebook. You know, Facebook used to be a place where I meet others, reconnect with them, uh, make human connections, and you know, and, and in some way, it still is part of that, of course. But really, what has happened is that Zuckerberg and his uh, team of of scientists have built a perfect data capturing engine uh, that is so successful. I think the latest numbers: eighty five million dollar profit every single day. So they've built a machine that is data mining us and selling us back to the highest bidder. And now it's going to be virtual reality and, and filtering our phone calls and, you know, all of those things. So that's too much of a good thing, quite clearly. And this is kind of the self-fulfilling prophecy of technology. Whatever can be done will be done. That may be funny when it's about simple things like Google Maps or so, right? And it may still be good for us. But if it's about big things like data mining, our human thinking, predicting our reactions, looking at our faces during an interview uh, process, you know, face recognition, then we can say, well, that is clearly not going to humanize us. That's going to turn us into an object. And, and, and so this is really what we have to watch out for. That's exactly like, you know, if you like to eat, that's good. But if you eat all day, you will die. And we've noticed that, of course, in real life. And now we're seeing it in digital life. What about IoT? Is that another place where your dictum of too much of a good thing might come to pass? Well, absolutely. I think, you know, the dream of IoT is to connect everything, increase the margins, better efficiency and speed. And that's all very good stuff. But but this is primarily about efficiency and process automation. And, and, and this is all very good stuff for business. But on the flip side of this, we have the issue of surveillance, and we have no real guarantee on data privacy. And basically, when I look at IoT companies saying that all of these cool things can be done, like, you know, the Sidewalk project from Amazon, the recent one, and of course, uh, the Toronto, what's it called, Side Labs from Google, and so on, I have to say, well, if you don't take care of the flip side, then your offering is useless. Because we have to think both of the benefits and the externalities. So whatever it creates inadvertently or advertently in some cases, we have to take care of both. Otherwise, we become a shell or Exxon mobile of the internet. And that we don't, we can't afford that again. So we have to cover both parts of that. And unfortunately, many of those companies that are in the IoT space, they come from engineering. And they're very happy if it works perfectly. And, and what happens after it works? not their concern, right? And that kind of thinking will not work here. It will not be successful. That was part one of our interview with Gert Leonhardt. We'll be back right after a sponsor break. We Talk IoT, the smart industry podcast, is sponsored by Microsoft. Microsoft Azure IoT Hub. Highly secure and reliable communication between your IoT application and the devices it manages. Azure IoT Hub provides a cloud-hosted solution backend to virtually connect any device. Extend your solution from the cloud to the edge with per-device authentication, built-in device management, and scaled provisioning. 
IoT solution based on Microsoft IoT Hub, then Avnet IoT Connect is your perfect choice. A standardized way to harness IoT so your business can quickly build smart apps and solutions based on the Azure platform. Hi, we're back with part two of our podcast interview with Gert Leonhardt, the head of the Futures Agency and the best-selling author of Technology versus Humanity. Gert, in your latest column for Smart Industry, you talk about the good future. Would you define that for us, please? Well, I think if we look at the bottom line as to what people find good or not good, uh, there's a surprising amount of agreement as to what good is. Right. So just the bottom line of that means the right to work, the right to have children, the right for your children to do better than you are doing, uh, the right for expression, the right for freedom. And, and this is something that 99.9% of people would agree, those things are good. And on the flip side, we also agree on what is not good, poverty, disease, oppression, and so on. So when I talk about the good future, I'm talking only about the bottom line of saying the basic things that we want are very much the same. How do we achieve them? And how do we agree on the agenda of how to create a good future? And you can say as an example, the good future is definitely not going to be to have a planet that is ruined while the top 0.1% own 50% of all resources. That doesn't strike me as good because you can't do business or be happy on a destroyed planet. So defining that as good is kind of the bottom line, right? So not good in the sense of, you know, having a car or having internet access or those kind of more upper level things, but on the very basic bottom line. You say it's time to rehumanize. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, rehumanize, I mean, the idea of saying that what matters first is not material benefit or growth of GDP or more jobs or more stuff. That's kind of the pre-COVID paradigm. You know, let's say the, the good old-fashioned capitalism, which worked well for a long time, no question about it. But we can't say that the ultimate purpose of life is to increase prosperity or to increase profit. That was a very simple paradigm that worked when there was still lots of room. Now we have to think differently, and we have to think about people, planet, purpose, and, and prosperity, about a larger story. And when we do that, then all of a sudden we think of different business models, sort of a sustainable capitalism, right? And that's part of the good future scenario, because in the end, the rising tide floats all boats, right? But if there's no water in the channel or the bay, we don't need any boats. And that's kind of where we're headed up against. You know, we are at the fork and road of that moment where we have to decide as to what we want. The EU especially is stepping up its efforts to regulate the scope of artificial intelligence. Do you really think that putting limits on technology is a good idea and that it will even work? Well, it wasn't necessary to put too many limits on technology until now because it didn't work. You know, if you're proposing to track every single person in the world for all kinds of reasons, whatever they are, nefarious and otherwise, you know, that wasn't possible until just recently. And now it's normal. Right? So how do we prevent technology from going overboard in the sense of artificial intelligence, uh, preventing bias, preventing what I call machine thinking or dataism, as Harari calls it, right? Uh, believing in data. You know, there is a lot more things in life than data, and humans are not machines, in my view. 
if you believe that humans are machines, then welcome to the party. Then, you know, you take all the AI you can get. But if you believe that we have some sort of purpose with some sort of consciousness, a human agency that's unique, that we may discover in 2050 that is also kind of possibly programmable, that's a whole different story. But until then, I think we need to make sure that we, we hold this up as the utmost destination, which is human flourishing and the flourishing of the planet, which of course goes hand in hand, right? <laughs> so that to me is is the big question, you know, uh, which one of those two things do you believe in? And of course, IoT is all about data, isn't it? It's all about data, but you know, this is a technology and technology is not a purpose, it's a tool. As soon as we think of technology as the purpose of life, then we end up in George Orwell territory. Right? Technology is not the purpose in itself, it's not what we seek, but how we seek, it, it is a tool. And when I think of the tool, you know, if I'm a carpenter and I fall in love with my hammer and I sleep with the hammer in my bed, you know, okay, <laughs> that's pretty interesting, but that's not what the hammer does. You fall in love with the house that you've built, right? That is ultimately what you do. And when we use technology, we can fall in love with what we've built with it. And what we've built has to have a purpose, a higher purpose than, you know, the building. You know, a purpose as to what happens in the building and so on. And that is really what matters to humans, right? Ultimately, humans are not data-driven. They're driven by experiences, by relationships, by trust, by things that are beyond comprehension for machines. So this is why we should not allow machines to measure us with 98% of what they're measuring being completely like, like GDP, you know, measures only what doesn't really matter. <laughs> so if we do that, then I think we're going to be in deep trouble. Yeah. A fool with a tool is still a fool, I believe the old saying goes. You believe we are becoming over-dependent on our devices and our online services to the point of becoming addicts. Societies, as a rule, haven't been very good with dealing with addiction in the past, be it tobacco, alcohol, or drugs. Do you truly believe we'll do a better job with curing digital junkieism? Actually, I think I would refute both of those things. You know, I don't think we've become too dependent or addicted to technology, but that we haven't found a way to balance. And that, that's because it's so good, you know. I often say the, the, the Steve Jobs paradigm, you know, magic technology, that's amazing. When a magic technology becomes kind of manic and you get obsessed with it, like checking your Facebook book feed at three in the morning, you know, that's still kind of laughable and you would have a good uh, joke about that. But when it's toxic and you're sitting with your kids at, dinner, at the dinner table and you're constantly checking your LinkedIn updates, that, that is toxic, right? That is no longer just magic. And, and so uh, really the second part of that is we have actually been quite good at dealing with addiction and drugs, apart from the opioid crisis. You know, we have social contracts, we have laws, and they're being flaunted and damaged, but by and large, they're working. Everybody can buy whiskey at 9 a.m. and drink a whole bottle of it. And why are we not doing it? Well, it's not good for my work or my job, and, and people will look down on me if I do, right? If I do it at 9 p.m., maybe people wouldn't notice. <laughs> you know? So we, we have figured out all of those things in sort of a guideline-type scenario. And we have addicts, and we have alcohol problems, and we have opioid problems. But by and large, we have figured out a way to deal with dangerous stuff. And that's a combination of voluntary and loss, of course. And if you're in Germany and somewhere in Bavaria, you know, you're 14 years old, you look kind of grown up, you can get a beer at a bar, of course. 
Yeah, is that legal? No, it's not legal, but you can. And I think technology is very much the same way, except for technology is now so powerful because it's the deepest possible addiction uh, to humanity is to provide us with complete guidance and ultimate laziness, like I call it the sofalarity, right? Not the singularity. We can just sit there and have technology do it for us. So that is the danger, right? And yes, I think we can find a way to find a balance by pointing out to people as to what really matters. You know, as I always, as I say sometimes, you know, you will not find happiness on the screen or in an app or in the cloud. You only find hedonism, which is okay. But happiness resides somewhere else. That, that is about us. It's not about the tool. Well, some find it at the bottom of a bottle, but of course that's not good for your liver and probably not for your brain. Elon Musk wants to connect our brains to the internet. We explore that topic at length in our latest title story on smart industry. You seem to fall into the camp of the naysayers on that issue. Am I right? Well, Elon is brilliant, you know, and he's also kind of wacko at times, as everybody knows. And he's probably the world's most dangerous man uh, in a good way and a bad way. <laughs> and as typical sort of 21st century stuff. I think the idea of connecting our brain to the internet is amazing if you're quadriplegic or otherwise completely not functional or the, the victim of an of a accident or so. That's amazing. But for a healthy human to think that I can connect to this giant network and still remain human, that strikes me as a total illusion. Now, again, Marshall McLuhan, right? That's the biggest amputation you can possibly think of because I would be dysfunctional without it. Like, we're kind of dysfunctional without a mobile phone, but if your battery goes down on the mobile phone, you're still walking and breathing. And you may be handicapped for communications, but you're still there. Now, think about virtual reality, right? If you were to work in virtual reality all day long as a doctor or lawyer or dentist or so, you would be superhuman like Tom Cruise in the Minority Report. And that would already result in you going home and looking at your family saying, oh, God, how boring. You know, I don't get the data feed anymore. <laughs> you know? Now, think about the ultimate thing when your brain is always connected. That is true science fiction. In my view, it's a giant Silicon Valley money-making scheme that will make trillions of dollars because everybody wants to be superhuman, but ultimately would be the end of humanity as we know it in the sense of being truly human. Artificial General Intelligence, or AGI, geoengineering, or human genome editing, you say, are both magical opportunities as well as significant existential threats, just like nuclear power. You call for a series of non-proliferation treaties to stop their uncontrolled spread. Whose job do you think it will be to negotiate such international agreements? Well, whose job is it to save the world from itself? Uh, we have to look no further than the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, 1971, I believe. Took about 18 years to negotiate. Who was in charge? Well, United Nations, yes. And we'd be looking for a global body to be in charge of those moratoriums because the thing is when technology becomes unlimitedly powerful, which is roughly in 10 years, you know, supercomputing, quantum computing, unlimited fusion energy, and so on and so on. And, you know, we get to the place where we can do all these things. And then we have to say, well, let's think about this for a second. If we have a machine with an IQ of a trillion, you know, that machine would have figured out for the next 4,000 years how to prevent itself from being unplugged. 
You know, Nick Bostrom talks about this a lot, of course, right, and others. And we're going to need to figure out a common global line of saying until here and no further unless we figured out a safe way of doing it, right? The precautionary principle. And that has worked well in nuclear disarmament. It has been very difficult and people have violated it, but we're still here and it has to work well for genome editing. For example, you could clearly say, well, defeating cancer, preventing cancer by genetic engineering, if we can only save one person, we'd have to do it. At the same time, genetic engineering of that nature would also allow you to program your babies. And who gets to do that? What are the guidelines for this? So a global body like the UN or the follow-up of the UN, maybe, <laughs> a, a sort of global government or a council of the wise people, we're going to have to figure out how to get on the same page. And can we do that? Yes, we can, because we've proven that when the shit hits the fan, as they say, we can actually collaborate. Look at the COVID crisis and look at the treaties for nuclear. But isn't it actually already too late? You know, I, I don't think that's really true. I think it, it is when you're looking at top level issues like this, where we have to collaborate or else, the biggest problem is the, what you might call it, the tragedy of the timeline, as Kim Stanley Robertson in, in his uh, book calls it. It's basically that the timeline is far away for the ultimate effect of these things. Like genetic engineering will not work next week, but in 20 years, 25, probably yes. And do we have the foresight to act before it happens? Or do we need sort of a Hiroshima-Nagasaki effect first, as Oppenheimer was always claiming that it was necessary to have the bomb so that we would not have more bombs? Now, that is a bizarre story that we're going to discuss another time. Thank you very much, Gert Leonhardt, futurist, best-selling author, and a regular columnist for our magazine, Smart Industry. Thanks for sharing your insights with us. You're welcome. Thank you. And now, one more thing. IoT knows no limits, and OutSense, an Israeli startup in the area of digital health, is proving just how right that saying is. They have just been granted the first patent for an IoT system that analyzes human excrement in order to detect hidden traces of blood in a patient's stool, an early warning sign of colon cancer, among others. Called a medical toilet sensor, the system can also be used to check urine samples, for instance, to detect symptoms of dehydration or urinary infections. The device uses reflected light from the toilet bowl itself to determine the optical signature of blood traces and thus its origin within the gastrointestinal tract, thus gaining potentially life-saving medical insights. OutSense has applied for and received patents in the US, Europe, Japan, and China. The patent approvals underscore our company's strong intellectual property position and its clear lead over competitors in the field of stool and urine monitoring, says Yifat Skialom, CEO of OutSense. She predicts that, quote, with the explosive growth in digital medicine, this kind of monitoring is going to become the norm. Another tool from OutSense diagnoses abnormalities within the human waste. The information from the sampled blood, combined with additional analysis of the time from the bleeding to its excretion, 
can provide doctors with crucial details about the pathology of the bleeding, for instance, whether it stems from fissures, hemorrhoids, polyps, tumors, or ulcers. In June, OutSense announced that CommuniCare, a major healthcare enterprise with more than 90 facilities in the U.S., has agreed to conduct a pilot examination of its medical toilet sensor technology. The company has already run clinical trials in Israel and Japan. That was We Talk IoT, the Smart Industry Podcast. You can read all the latest from Smart Industry, the IoT Business Magazine, by visiting our website at www.smart-industry.net, where you'll find hundreds of feature articles about everything from smart manufacturing and cognitive computing to autonomous driving and how IoT and AI are making business smarter. There, you can sign up to receive our newsletter, Smart Industry Updates. I'm Tim Cole. See you back next month when, once again, we talk IoT.